This week on The Futurists, Daniel Kraft. Many diseases are, are complex, but we'll see some proactive cures, kind of like the minority report. You'll, you'll cure the disease before you even know you have it. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursik with my co-host, Brett King. Hi, Brett. Hey, hey. Are you back in Thailand now? Or are you in the U.S.? Yeah, I just got back from uh, a week in Amsterdam um, oh. where we where I did an event there. And uh, yeah, and then here for just over, just over a week and then uh, got ahead to Mexico City for another event. Oh, boy. Right. Well, fun. Well, perfect time of year to visit Mexico. Uh, so here in the Futurist, you know, we love to talk to people who are not just thinking about the future, writing about the future, but actually doing something active to invent the future and make it happen. And this week we have somebody I'm thrilled to join us. Uh, we met ages ago, more than a decade ago at Singularity University, uh, where he's on the faculty. But let me just share which, you briefly. Which, which version of Singularity was that? That's that's the uh, that's the Ray Kurzweil and Peter Demandis, uh No, no, no. I've, I mean, I've done um, work for uh, Singularity uh, on the finance side. Oh, but it was one of the specialist streams. No, no. This was back in the day when they just had Singularity University for oh, just uh, you. Okay, yeah, cool. And, and um, and it's a great gathering, right? Because that, that's they always bring together like-minded people who are thinking about the future and overachievers. Now, now listen to this background. By way of introduction, you're going to love this. Right. Talk about overachievers. Um, our guest today got his undergraduate degree at Brown, then went to Stanford Medical School, did his residency at Harvard, went back to Stanford oh, for a goodness. fellowship. He's given four TED Talks. He's the chair of the XPRIZE's Pandemic and Health Alliance Task Force. And he's on the, as I mentioned, on the faculty of Singularity University, where he focuses on the future of medicine. And he's also the creator of his own event, which was pre previously known as uh, Exponential Medicine, but now it's known as Next Med Health. And he gathers there about 70 faculty and uh, attendees from more than 40 countries come together each year in San Diego to talk about the future of medicine and the future of health. Let's give a big warm welcome to my friend and super futurist, Daniel Kraft. Hi, Dan. Hey there. Thanks for having me. We're so psyched to have you here today. So, you know, this is going to be a fun show because honestly, for uh, most people, the pandemic was a period of time where they stayed away from the doctor's office and, and, and rightly so. Um, so that means for a few years, we may have missed any of the new innovations that are happening in the healthcare field. And um, I wanted to share, I wanted to hear your, your perspective on some of that, because I know you talk about this subject all the time. It, oh. Outside of messenger RNA vaccines, of course. Oh, yeah, so that's true. We all have that experience, yeah. Yeah, I mean, especially early in the pandemic, we did stay away from the traditional clinic. And that was to some folks detriment people didn't get screened for cancer or ignored heart attacks. And there was lots of downstream implications. but. If we want to zoom back big picture, um, you know, uh, COVID acted as a catalyst for many things in healthcare that were sort of stuck, whether it was telemedicine or new ways of doing virtual clinical trials or some elements of public health. It also opened our eyes to many of the disparities and challenges we have. We're still using fax machines to communicate public health data from many states. Um, but big picture, it, it did accelerate some elements in, in what's often incremental healthcare to exponential. And uh, I'm an optimist by by training, and I think some of the some of the things that converged and came to came to be from the pandemic, and hopefully save more lives than the pandemic took uh, in the long term. That's a positive view on it. It's true. Uh, in a way, uh, COVID was like boot camp. It was like forced exposure to some advances 
And candidly, the healthcare industry moves slowly because it's heavily regulated and people's lives are at stake. So I guess that's that's warranted. Um, but the telemedicine is a great example of something that you know we got shock treatment exposure to. It's like if you wanted to see a doctor, suddenly the best way to see him was on your phone. Something we'd been talking about for 10 years, uh, but it was pretty hard to get people to move on that. And most people felt like, well, I'd rather go see the doctor. But suddenly going to the clinic, well, that's where sick people are. So nobody wanted to go to the clinic anymore. And it made more sense to turn to the phone. Is that, has that persisted since then or has it dropped off somewhat? We certainly had this huge spike, particularly not just driven by the pandemic, but the incentives. All of a sudden, the payment models were unlocked from things like CMS and Medicare. Uh, the HIPAA regulations were loosened so you could do a Zoom call and not be breaking the law and talking to a patient. So some important things were sort of shifted. In some cases, those have shifted back a bit. So we certainly don't have the same level. I think we're moving more into this new age of not just virtual care or physical, but hybrid, right? Many things you go to see the doctor or the clinic don't require to be there physically, but there's still the important human touch. Certainly you still need to have laboratories and sometimes physical exams done. Um, but I think we're under, under this hybrid age. And even before you talk to a clinician on a, on a, on a screen, you'll first talk to the chatbot that's going to increasingly be chat GPT enabled. And it's going to know Robert, your entire history and your microbiome and other omics information. So you're not saying the right. same questions, asking how old you are and, uh, where you have your belly pain. It'll put all that in context for you. So, um, we're just at the beginning, I think of this hybrid telemedicine or, or metaverse or uh, mediverse age where how we integrate with our clinicians, our care teams, our, our health chatbots is going to be dramatically different. Before we get into the chat GPT, um, you know, there's, there is uh, significant advancements happening in the sensor tech as well that, you know, result in better data inputs. So we just saw that um, Apple's XPG, their experimental products group, has um, announced that they've had a breakthrough in terms of an imaging sensor that can detect non-invasively, um, can, te- can, de- can detect blood sugar levels as an example. Um, you know, and we've seen already significant uh, advances in the sensors for heart rate monitoring and things like that. But, um, you know, one of the things that we we comment on um, often, you know, Katie and I, when we talk about this stuff is that, you know, you, you can get, um, you know, you can walk into one hospital, or one doctor and have some history there. And that doctor knows all of your history. But if you go to a a new country or a new city and you walk into a new hospital, you seem to start from scratch. But we're also trying to solve that with sort of um, obviously DNA sequencing. You talk about gut, you know, gut genome and, uh, you know, just uh, better sharing of, of that sort of data. Um, now you can, of course, carry it around on your phone, emergency medical data and so forth. But, you know, what's the, uh, what's the infrastructure piece of this that's providing that uh, data platform or that ecosystem for um, better medical um, you know, monitoring slash analytics, diagnostics, et cetera. Yeah, we're definitely entering this sort of exponential age, just back to the wearable piece. Yeah, I'm wearing my Apple Watch. You know, it's only been, what, 12, 13 years since the Fitbit really first came out. And we've been, many of us are data geeks. We're quantified selfers. We can track our steps and our sleep, but it's been stuck on our app most likely. It's starting to be able to shift from your smart wearable into your healthcare system to your pharmacist to nutritionist uh, and be super useful, quantified self to quantified health. The challenge is we're all generating potentially 
terabytes of data, your doctor, if I'm your doctor, I don't want to look at all your data, your EKG, your blood sugar, your blood pressure, which is all coming to your wristwatch pretty soon. The trick is how do you make that big data and synthesize that uh, actionable information that you as a human consumer patient can, can use proactively to be much more engaged in your own care, be the CEO of your own health. But back to the systems issue, where does that data reside? Who's responsible for parsing it to kind of give you that check engine light if you're about to blow a gasket and uh, give you early warning? Um, right now, there's so many scattered healthcare systems, let alone the US, let around the world. There is no one architecture. But now that you can collect that on your smartphone and potentially own your own data and share, choose where to share it, I think we're going to see a lot of new solutions where you can start to build your own personal digital twin, sort of the buzzword, where it'll be a combination of your digitome, your sociome, your metabolomics, et cetera, that can really give you personalized guidance for prevention, for early diagnostics, and for therapy. But there's still the huge challenges of the systems element, the siloed data, the cross-pollination doesn't happen because of well-meaning, well-meaning, but old regulations like HIPAA. So we need to think at the systems level um, to connect the dots for what's already pretty magical technology today. Wow, that's a that's a sweeping view. Um, I wonder if we're able to connect the dots as as elegantly as you envision. Uh, it seems like it seems like it's a work in progress, and we're kind of like you know futzing our way and patching our way towards the future. Uh, we've been hearing about the progress in wearables for many years, like you pointed out, 13 years or so. Um, now it is true, Apple's consolidated all of that technology into the watch and they seem to be on a kind of a mission to gather all that wearable data and, and include all those sensors in the phone. Um, how useful is that actually today to doctors? Well, right now it's not particularly useful. It's pretty hard to get your Fitbit or your Apple Watch data to your clinician, even if they know what to do with that data. Um, I like to see where this is heading more as like predictalytics. Like, you, each of us today can use your standard smartwatch or wearable, not just to look at your spot data from the morning. I can look at my aura ring sleep score, but mm -hmm. I can also look at my longitudinal resting heart rate or how I recover from exercise or my overall sleep patterns, or maybe an oxygen saturation and soon continuous blood pressure, maybe even continuous blood sugar, which might be relevant for many folks. And then we can have what I like to call sort of like your individualized baseline. Robert, what is your rest? Your resting heart rate's 52 when you sleep and it starts rising to 65 and some other changes, maybe in your gait or other elements can be picked up that can give you kind of that, that early warning that something is a little off and can point you to be almost having a continuous physical exam. I mean, think about our current model, you, you know, you once a year, if you're lucky, you go in for your standard physical exam. It's very intermittent data that's collected once and siloed. And that gives us a reactive mindset. We wait for the heart attack, the stroke, the late stage cancer. Right. If we start to connect the dots between the existing data, let alone the future, we can be much more proactive and personalized and find problems early and, and cut them off at the bud. But, but it seems like the Apple Watch is pretty close to that already. You know, for instance, uh, my Apple Watch does show me my sleep cycle and it shows me uh, averages. It'll compare my, you know, I guess my sleep performance to previous days in the week. Uh, it shows me trends. So so I guess some of what you're describing is is gradually happening. Um, what's interesting is it doesn't seem to compare my data to other people, even my anonymized data. I would be interested in that because, you know, for instance, uh, my uh, my Google thermostat does that. It tells me about other houses in my neighborhood and it says, you know, I'm in the average or maybe I'm in the high or the low or something. And it gives me kind of an incentive to try to be efficient with my with my home heat, my home energy use. And I wonder if we could do something similar with, uh, with personal wearables. Yeah, I think making the data and not just data, but actionable insights and those insights useful to you at the as a clinician at the bedside or the website or in your context 
is incredibly important. And sometimes it can be gamified because you can be finding the the Robert level of incentives, points, gaming badges that match you. Um, And and ideally we start to crowdsource that knowledge. I always love the example of Google Maps or Waze. I mean, 15 years ago, we're still driving with paper maps. And now we couldn't imagine getting around without Google Maps or Waze. That's crowdsourcing driving information. What if we had the Google Maps or Waze for health journeys that were very hyper relevant and local to you and your conditions and genetics and beyond and gave you insights to your health journey? And we're starting to see that happen, right? There's the all of us trial from the NIH where people are sharing their data, their labs, their genomics. There's a platform out of Israel, actually founded by one of the founders of Waze called StuffThatWorks.Health, where now millions of folks are sharing what's happening for their psoriasis or their long COVID or their plantar fasciitis. And you can learn from the crowd about what might work really for you. So Mm -hmm. lots of opportunity to connect the dots. It's not about the data now. It's how we make that actionable and hyper, hyper personalized. I can see this is going to be a great conversation, but before we rush off and tackle all the other topics uh, that are clearly popping up, um, let's get to know you a little bit better. So Daniel, are you still a, da- a practicing doctor in addition to being a futurist? I'm still licensed to dangerous. I trained, uh, as you mentioned, in both internal medicine and pediatrics, med peds, and then I did pediatric hematology, oncology, and bone marrow transplantation. And for a while I was doing uh, clinical clinical faculty at UCSF doing pediatric transplant, and then got a little too busy. I was also juggling being a flight surgeon in the Air National Guard, so spending um wow. Week in a month, taking care of fighter pilots and getting to fly with them occasionally. But I'm still licensed. I've done a little telemedicine, take care of my friends and family. But I've got a few too many hats to sort of be in the clinic you, on a regular basis. Yeah. How do you get from pediatric transplants to doing National Guard sort of combat health care or something like that? Now, I grew up with the sort of flying in space thing. I grew up in D.C. Uh, I went to the Apollo 17 launch when I was a kid. I always wanted to be an astronaut, um, almost got to be an astronaut. I got to the very, very final selection down at NASA and went through all the exams and tests. And my left eye was not quite 2150 enough. Um, but that gave me this whole pathway. I was a pilot as well. And I thought, wow, I always want to be a fighter pilot, but I didn't have 2020 vision. And it turned out oh. I could be a flight surgeon. I'm like, you're actually going to pay me to fly in fighter jets? <laughs> Sign me up. So when I was a resident mass general, I raised my right hand, joined the Massachusetts Air National Guard. It was an F-15 squadron on, on Cape Cod and had an amazing experience flying with them, really seeing the inside of the military. I got to do deployments to Saudi Arabia. Two of my pilots were the guys over in New York City on 9-11, later with an F-16 squadron in California. But that was sort of my whole like uh, flying in space <laughs> uh, passion, which I, I still have. And It's still pretty cool, dude. Yeah. And there's lots of lessons from aviation, let's say for healthcare checklists, resource management, how your jet engines now stream data down to the ground and make flying much safer. So I love the kind of overlap. And, you know, I even went way back to International Space University when I was a space geek in medical school. And just like in healthcare, you need to kind of connect the dots between different fields if we're going to really move things forward. And and space is a kind of a, especially space medicine, uh, is a great challenging area to help build the future. Now, Rob, you're going to have to watch. We don't go down the rabbit hole, Daniel. No, I think this stuff. is going to be this is going to be a rabbit hole kind of a show. I can already see that happening. Um, <laughs> I, I, will say, manage- um, I will ask. Um, um, what do you, as a GA pilot, what do you what do you fly these days? Well, it was really tough going from F-15s and F-16s. I got to fly in the backseat. They gave me the jet. Yeah. I now uh, co-own a, a, a experimental glass air too. With uh, ah, company. nice. I know the glass air. Yeah, yeah I is- fly SR twenty two, a Cirrus, generally. So. GA, but I'm I'm not current right now, but um, yeah. 
it's good to have the parachute. And what's interesting, I grew up on the round dials. I used to run the Brown University yep. Flying Club, $20 an hour wet, you know, so much we pay oh, for the wow. gas. Seriously. But what's amazing now, these glass cockpits and the experimental, this has overlaps to healthcare. They give you so much information. And in the experimental world, you can just have a touch screen. It's like a super iPad and see all the planes and the traffic and where to go. It gives you all what we call situational awareness. And that yeah, kind of yeah. ability to sift massive amounts of data just in time and give you a user interface is something that's still really lacking in healthcare. And can give us, I think, some lessons in how we translate all these new massive forms of information to actionable, useful, like fly here, take a left, take a right. Here's where the airport is. Here's where the bad weather is. Um, and that's sort of this shift from analog to digital that we're seeing across healthcare as well. Mm. And one of the things I'm gathering from this, uh, which is really instructive for our audience, is um, is that you've developed a methodology for thinking about the future of medicine. And one of your methods is to cross-pollinate. You try different experiences and sometimes pretty extreme experiences, like flying in an F-16. And um, and then you'll gather from that some useful insight uh, or some new perspective that you can apply to your medical practice. And that helps you think about it in a different way. Because it's true, like, you know, technology is being applied at different rates in different industries. It's not always rolling out at the exact same rate. And so there's this differential there and you can learn things if you're working with somebody who's on the very cutting edge, like the military, of course. Uh, and then you can bring that back to maybe a slow moving industry. And believe me, healthcare is a slow moving industry. It's saddled with regulations, saddled with, uh, you know, slow moving bureaucracies and so forth. Um, and so uh, it's not really, even though it's a high tech industry, it's not the most advanced tech industry. But tell me where I'm wrong about that. I want to know, like, how do you think about healthcare? and find opportunities to deploy technologies where things can actually get done. Yeah, I mean, just back to the COVID framing, um, talking about space, you know, Sputnik sparked the space age, and I hopefully COVID is sparking a bit of a new health age. And I think if we look back 10 years and to where we are now, where we're going to be in the next decade, we're going to see pretty massive transformations. I mean, um, where we're sort of wrong, you know, not wrong, but today we're now 10 years after IBM Watson, we're seeing AI really start to impact healthcare and, you know, dozens of new AI based applications and digital therapeutics for AI meets radiology, for example, to make everything from mammogram screenings to personal handheld ultrasounds, you know, that you can use in the savannas of Africa with a, a community health worker. So we're starting to see what used to be kind of slow. These things catch up. You know, we know Moore's law. There's also Amara's right. law. We overestimate what happens in two years and underestimate what happens in a decade. And some of these tools and technologies are really starting to catch fire, whether it's the AI piece or mRNA and sequencing and mm -hmm. genetic engineering, all the way to this world of wearables and otherables that are really starting to give us this whole new picture of what is health, disease, and even you know public health and global health at scale. Now back to back to COVID as a catalyst. So we had uh, Andrew Hessel on the show, a good friend of yours, I know, and a colleague from Singularity University. Everyone um, talks about Andrew when they come on this show. He's like one well, of the most referenced guests, right? He he is a good cross pollinator, is why, and he's yeah. he does exactly what, what Daniel was just saying, which is that he surveys across a broad landscape of technologies. His expertise is uh, synthetic biology, and that's an industry that's often been accused of being permanent dawn, you know, where the sun never fully rises on on synthetic biology. He said, "Well, that's not true." He said, "Everybody had an experience of that. Everybody in the U.S. at least, and on, and the northern hemisphere." during COVID-19, because that MNRA vaccine is, an, is a byproduct of synthetic biology. And so it isn't some, um, you know, it's not being advertised that way. And candidly, probably people would resist it. They resisted the vaccine enough as it was, so it didn't need that additional headwind. Um, but it was a way for people to uh, get the benefit 
of uh, genomic science. And, uh, and, and then we also had um, uh, Philip Alvelda on the show, and I'm not sure if you know him, but he is an AI researcher in the field of healthcare. And he made another point uh, about COVID that I thought was quite relevant. Um, he said, you know, the big change from, uh, for us, our, from our perspective with, with, uh, with COVID-19 is that consumers got a new expectation about diagnostics. And he said, really, for the first time in history, you can go to a grocery store or a drugstore and buy a drug kit, a test kit, and take it home and get a result. And it's not a result that needs to be interpreted. It's not some sort of diagnostic thing where you have to have a professional come in and read a set of values on a scale. He says, yes or no, it's black or white. It's simple. It's uh, very clear cut. You either got it or you didn't get it. And he said, that's a new expectation in consumer healthcare. Why don't you respond a little bit to those two ideas? Because I think for most people, we missed that. Um, in a way, it was so effective. It was presented so well, and we were so desperate for a solution that we may have missed the magic behind that and the decades of technological progress that led to the moment when you could go to a drugstore and buy a test that gave you a simple yes or no answer. Yeah, I mean, just back to the testing. Now we're all used to having some home form of home diagnostic, whether that's going to be for an infectious disease, you know, the flu, RSV, COVID. We're now picking up other elements, home hemoglobin A1Cs and ways to track how thin your blood might be if you're on a cardiac med. Um, and so we're certainly seeing this super convergence of where home diagnostics meets new data that hopefully then feeds into our public health system, but it might even give us that early warning that there's a hotspot. And back to the synthetic biology side, the future should be, I mean, we heard that we sequenced the early version of COVID and were able to kind of design the vaccine within three days or three hours. That is that sort of future of N equals one medicine. We'll be able to look at your particular tumor type and generate an mRNA vaccine against your particular tumor type. Um, that won't be a home-based diagnostic, but there are now portable you know, uh, genetic sequencers that will soon pretty much, they can fit in our pocket today, but be affordable or at least be in your clinic or drugstore. And as healthcare shifts from hospital to home or hospital to hospital or to your corner pharmacy, where you get diagnosed, the data you can integrate and how you can make that actionable is getting exciting. But we're still challenged. I actually ran an XPRIZE for rapid COVID testing in collaboration with Jeff Huber, the founder of Grail and others. It was a long path to be able to get home diagnostics for COVID. Uh, part of that was the FDA. They wanted perfect tests at the equivalent of PCR. And sometimes perfection is the enemy of the good. But I'm hopeful now with the blend of telehealth and wearables and other rules and home diagnostics, we're going to really shift the, the needle back to earlier diagnostics and, and hopefully making healthcare more equitable and, and democratized around the planet. Because now with a smartphone and a cheap test, you can at least self-diagnose and then get the right help um, at an earlier stage in, in a disease. I'm glad you brought up the idea of equity because that's going to be an important topic for us in the second half of the program, uh, bringing health to the whole world and not just to the wealthiest people on the planet. But, you know, what we like to do um, before we take our break is we like to do a lightning round of questions. This is where we ask our guests a series of short questions. Um, my friend Brett is always the person who administers the particular poison. And so uh, get ready for the lightning round brought to you by Brett King. Okay, Daniel, here's a few quick fire questions. What was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on TV or books, movies? It Probably Star Wars was probably the most obvious one, and uh, that blew my mind. It's always funny to go back and look at that movie now, and it feels sort of antique, and the and the, the special effects are are kind of yeah. meh. <laughs> but that was my first mind blowing sci fi, and I read Highland and and uh, you know Stranger Strange Land, you know, really early. Uh, Star Wars was like one of the only movies I ever saw with my dad in a cinema, so similar. Um, what technology do you think has most changed humanity? Wow. Um, 
<laughs> social media, maybe not for the best. I'm not sure that counts as a technology, but how we can now cross-connect information. There's actually med Twitter, lots of ways we used it in the pandemic and, and beyond. So it has just like anything else, like AI or 3D printing, you can have you can print a gun or print a medical device. You can have AI for good or for bad, and social media sort of in that gamish. And maybe print a genome, we see the biohackers, right? But name a futurist or an entrepreneur that has influenced you personally. Wow, that's a tough one. Uh, Technologists has influenced me. I got to meet the the, the Google guys pretty early, um, you know, and uh, I think that was influential just to see that they'd started with something pretty, at the time, basic, the search engine, and now they built this incredible ecosystem around it and went from everything from Gmail to DeepMind. And uh, I, I think, that, you know, it, I think for entrepreneurs out there, it's, it's good to start with a core problem, solve it, but then you have a basis to kind of amplify and do some other magical things. Now, something a bit more related to your field. Is there any predictions or forecasts that have been made in science fiction about healthcare and the future of health that um, really got you thinking? Well, I've been involved for a while with XPRIZE and I helped come up with the medical tricorder XPRIZE, which was inspired by Star Trek, of which many things have been inspired. That idea that you can now have a home-based sensor that can wand you or touch the patient and give you the diagnosis. And we actually ran an XPRIZE, had some amazing teams build the equivalent of medical tricorders, which are now sort of becoming available in the pandemic and post-pandemic age. You're going to have like a TidoCare device at home, which will look in your ear and listen to your heart and lungs and be tied to your virtual visit. I think that's one example of science fiction becoming reality. Um, and there's also, of course, 3D printing, the sort of the idea of synthesizing things that's coming everything to printing medications, which is a project I'm working on, to printing food. And food and is medicine. And printed organs too, right? Though I don't think we're going to need printed organs because now with CRISPR, you can humanize a pig, as you know, and right. transplant a humanized heart, liver, kidney. It might not be kosher, but if you're waiting for an organ, you'll you'll take it. Now, we can talk about transgenics maybe there in the second half, but uh, we did get into that with Andrew Hessel a bit. But um, all right, great. Well, that's uh, that's it for this the first half of the show. You're listening to The Futurists. We'll be right back with Daniel Kraft to talk more about the future of medicine and health in uh, on The Futurist. We'll be right back. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and NextGen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm, I'm Rob Tursick with my buddy, Brett King. Hey, hey. And this week we are interviewing Dr. Daniel Kraft about the future. Now, Dan, thanks for making time. I know you're very busy because you got an event coming up right around the corner. Can you tell us what's up in San Diego? What are you doing? I'm running a new new event called NextMed Health. NextMed.health is a website. It's the evolution of the Exponential Medicine Conference that I founded and chaired for the last decade. And the idea around NextMed Health is that many healthcare meetings and gatherings are pretty siloed. I'm an oncologist. I'll go to, I'll go to oncology meetings. Cardi- I'll just go to cardiology. There's pharma, there's medical devices, there's investor meetings. 
Um, but it's rare that you mix people together from patients and pharma and clinicians and nurses and, and investors and startups. And so we spend four days looking at this convergence of what's happening in AI, robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, genomics, blockchain to psychedelics, you know, people from all sorts of worlds cross-pollinating and you sort of get the taste of the art of the possible, what's now near and next, and not just what's now and near, but and, and what's new, but sort of how to, how do we translate some of these new technologies to clinical impact at, at the global scale. So um, it's a great place to kind of, you know, find the future, find future collaborators and also change your mindset because we have everyone from the head of innovation from NHS to the head of genetics at Stanford to Ron Ballas, who runs innovation in Israel to Paul Stamets on the future psychedelics to, to folks doing everything from chatbots to drones to uh, the future of mental health and video games. So it's a, it's a great place to touch the future today and help create it going forward. That's great. So just uh, if you're following that, it's uh, nextmed.health, March 13 to 16 at Hotel Dole Coronado, which is a great uh, venue for uh, for events. And check the website because we're probably going to be doing a free live stream of the entire element. And it's just a very rich for four days if you want to catch some of it. You know, it's often, you know, the, there's that famous quote, the future's already here, just not evenly distributed. And it's a great place to sort of see what's in touch, what's here now and and kind of get that arc. In fact, you know, eight years ago, we had the CEO of Moderna there, you know, before anyone knew what mRNA was. We had uh, the CEO of Lavango when it was six months old, who's now built a platform for, you know, virtual uh, diabetes care. A lot of folks come there and sort of um, get their inspiration, but also highlight what's going to be the kind of next big game changer. It goes back to uh, methodology. You know, one of the ways that we love to, to uh, help our audience is to talk about what do you do in your life? that helps advance the future or bring the future to fruition. And um, by cross-pollinating different groups of people who are working at different aspects of the future, uh, that's a really powerful way to accelerate progress. As you mentioned, everybody's working in a silo and that's not limited to the healthcare or medical fields. That's true in every industry. So for the folks who are listening, this is a great lesson. What Daniel's done in his spare time, just for his own pure passion, is he's found a way to create a neutral meeting ground, a forum that connects people together who are passionate about the subject, but they might be coming at it from different angles. And that cross-pollinization is where connections get made, friendships get made, attitudes get changed, perspectives change. And as a result, a little bit of future progress gets made. Uh, so that's powerful. And the second thing you're doing that I think is really important for our listeners is that you're sharing all this information publicly in a new big public database that's available to people. Tell us about digital.health. So digital.health came to be, number one, I was lucky to get the domain, digital.health. It's very memorable. Um, and that's a bit of a new, that's so new anywhere, buzzword, digital health, mobile health, connected health, the fact that we can do healthcare in this new data-driven digital era. The challenge is, and I'm pretty good at keeping up with this, there used to be you know a few wearables, you know, the Fitbit, et cetera. Now there's hundreds. There's uh, when I gave a TED talk in 2011 about the future of medicine, there's an app for that. There were 20,000 apps. Now there's 300,000 health-related apps. And now many FDA-cleared digital therapeutics, clearly evidence-based digital platforms that can help manage everything from smoking to ADHD to you know cancer uh, therapy. And so the challenge is from clinician standpoints, and I'll give a keynote to, you know, and speak to many folks in healthcare organizations, pharma, hospital systems, physicians, they have no clue what's already out here, let alone what's coming. So 
And it's core digital.health is a, is, a, is a resource where you can learn about the cutting edge of digital health, regulatory reimbursement journals, but we also have a database of over, I think, 2,500 solutions and companies. So if you're looking for a solution around atrial fibrillation, for example, um, you might find the AliveCore device, the EKG that you can run off your phone. Right. Um, you might be able to save that in your own digital formula and prescribe that to a patient. Uh, you might find a solution around diabetes that helps reverse it with diet called Verda, for example. Um, and, and it's a bit of a discovery engine and a resource starting for clinicians to kind of build their own personal digital formulary. Uh, in the future, we'll have a consumer side. Uh, anyone can try it, digital.health. It's free. And uh, we love feedback on how to build it better because, um, again, the, the, the future is here, not evenly distributed. The trick is matching the solution and eventually the payment models and eventually the data flows. Because again, a clinician doesn't want to just prescribe a connected blood pressure cuff and be overwhelmed with blood pressure numbers. It needs to fit into the workflow and the incentives and the payment elements as well. Well, part, part of this must come back into sort of where are these data models being built? How is this data being shared? You know, who has access to these data models for you know leveraging artificial intelligence, for example? You know, in, you know, particularly in the United States, we've had this debate about the healthcare system, you know, being particularly inefficient right now because of the way, you know, the, the oligopolies or the monopolies uh, present there. You know, the, the U.S. pays twice for healthcare, the OECD average, for example, and often the outcomes are, you know, not not as great. We have a high number of bankruptcies in the U.S. that are, um, you know, as a result of, or at least in part, from healthcare costs up to two-thirds. Um, and so we do have some functional issues there. So how do we break through those elements of those firewalls from a systemic perspective with the, the different uh, networks and, um, you know, healthcare systems and so forth? And so the progress we're seeing in the research side, you know, when, if we're trying to operationalize this, aren't we really talking about breaking through a lot of those sort of proprietary and sort of network um uh, you know, structures that are currently in place to, to get better efficiency. Yeah. As you mentioned, we have the highest costs and often like the 14th or lower in the outcomes uh, compared to other countries in the U S and there's so many systems and many things are state by state. Um, and right. this is beyond my pay grade, but I would say it sometimes takes outside players. We're seeing obviously everyone from Amazon to Microsoft to Apple, to even Facebook get into healthcare in a variety of ways. Apple, uh, sorry, uh, Amazon just uh, combined forces. Theranos. Medical. Sorry, just kidding. <laughs> and uh, and so I think what's going to be interesting is sort of the outside perspectives and these huge consumer players that have our consumer data in some cases, and they are really good at delivering care. Even though Amazon Care got put on put on ice, we're seeing Amazon as a virtual clinic. Um, we're seeing the ability now for everyone to be a little more empowered and not have to wait and pay out of their um, pocket to see a clinician to use some of these new tools themselves. So I think we're at the cusp of starting to connect the dots in new ways, but we really do have the challenges on the regulatory side, the FDA, sometimes the F word, that has the challenge of how do you do, you know, software as a medical device. And to their credit, the FDA has accelerated new ways of combining new technologies, whether it's AI for radiology or software as a medical device or new pathways to AI meets drug discovery. But we need the regulars and we need the, the reimbursement things to come along. And right now, we still have mostly fee-for-service paying for sick care, you know, uh, the incentives to you know, do more transplants, biopsies, et cetera, not to pay for true health care or self-care where we can move the needle to being proactive and optimizing not just lifespan, but health span. So I don't think it's going to happen in any one systemic world. It's going to see buckets as well as 
learning from NHS and uh, other other systems which aren't perfect, but have the aligned incentives to keep people healthy and not just pay for more procedures, drugs. And, and That's really interesting to hear you say that, to hear an American doctor say that, that we can learn from other countries' healthcare systems, because so many American politicians get kind of bombastic on this topic. You know, they always begin by saying, best we have the, the best healthcare system yeah. in the world, which is true if you've got money. But if you don't have money, if you're not insured, it's one of the worst, right? So they, there's a huge va- variation or a huge delta there between the people who get coverage and don't. Meanwhile, there are other countries that have a different approach, which is that they believe the best way to, to provide healthcare is to give everybody a decent level of healthcare. Uh, the UK does that, Canada does that, and actually the majority of industrialized nations around the world provide you know, universal healthcare. Why don't we have universal healthcare in the United States? It's uh, mostly probably a political issue. I, I think there's some huge benefits to having some base level of universal care. You know, there's also the challenges where you can't get your hip transplant or hip replacement as fast as you might want, as happens in Canada and the NHS. But to have everybody have that base level of they're not going to go bankrupt if they have an appendicitis uh, or a new cancer diagnostic, right. cancer diagnosis, I think it has huge benefits. And um, I think we need to be smarter about democratizing healthcare and seeing where the you know where the huge disparities are. I mean, COVID was a big eye opener in terms of who got and had mortality and morbidity, uh, let alone the long COVID implications. And so, I think unless we really address this, it's going to be unsustainable. The the sick care costs are going to continue to go up. Let me talk a little bit about that because uh, I've actually to prepare for this. I actually did prepare for this. I, I gathered some info about the trends uh, that are shaping the healthcare environment. And so let me share those trends with you and then you can respond to it. So the big trends, the big macro trends for the next 10 years, more patients as the global population is aging. That's true in almost every country in the world. Um, And more information. You mentioned it earlier. Each of us can generate terabytes of data. And where do we put that? How do we collect it? How do we analyze it? More uninsured people because the costs continue to go up. So we have increasing costs and therefore uninsured people. Of course, there's more technology, but how do we pay for it? less pay goes to providers. So those those things together seem like a pretty formidable challenge. Uh, you know, more patients, more information, more uninsured, less pay to providers, and yet increasing costs, and then more technology. And, and I, then practical things like nursing gap, there's a massive- There's uh, a staffing shortage. Yeah. That's, that's also true. Yep. That's the next topic. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure where to go exactly with this, but I would say, you know, yes, there's a huge gap between uh, the unmet need and and the solution. And we need to now be um, proactive about leveraging some of these technologies to address them. And sometimes that means changing the regulations and the rules. But I would argue healthcare can be addressed and the disparities be lowered. Some technology gets expensive, but almost everyone has a smartphone today. And soon that the camera on your phone today can pick up your vital signs without having to have any sort of wearable. The chatbots are getting so good, certainly with GPT-4 and beyond, where they're going to have your entire medical history there and answer questions for you proactively in the language and 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 culture and, and, and education level that matches you. Um, so that means, as an example, in China, you know, uh, a lot of folks had no access to care. They run a platform called Good Doctor out of Ping An. I think 300 million mm-hmm. Chinese now have some basic level of digital chatbot technology tied to, to physical spaces when they need to get an actual checkup or drugs delivered. So that can sort of narrow the gaps at the extreme. And then we have places like, um, uh, you know, in Africa where there's almost no infrastructure where you can leapfrog uh, what's happened in the U.S. A company called Alara Health is building sort of the one medical for, for um, Africa where you can have a 
low-cost portable ultrasound device, an EKG, and a chatbot, and an AI, and help up-level a community health worker or primary care doctor. So I think, big picture, particularly in the next few years, we can connect some of these dots, including with omics and metabolomics and sort of that Google Maps and Ways for Care so that we're not doing one-size-fits-all um, prevention, diagnostics, or therapy. Yeah, I've seen this in the fintech space. Um, you know, uh, you know, I did the exponential finance with, finance with Peter and um, you know the the SU team as well for many years. Um, but on the on the finance side, one of the arenas where the US has actually fallen behind, um, you know, particularly in areas like mobile payments, for example, you know, the US is at least ten years behind China now. But part of that is because the regulation has tried to protect the incumbents because of the lobbying systems and, and so forth that we have. Do you see, um, you know, uh, just like we have seen with the debate on nationalized healthcare from the next generation med techs and, and things we're talking about, is it perhaps easier to um, build these startups offshore or still um, the US the place to to come if you're trying to build a next generation med tech company or you know, company that fits in the service space? I mean, I think the innovations coming from around the world and often can leapfrog the United States and it's not all being invented here. Um, I think a lot of innovation here does try and go outside the US first where there's less regulatory constraints. And again, the, the lobby isn't there. I mean, example, 10 years ago, there was a, a AI-powered anesthesia machine that was approved in the US called Cetasys, and it would do a pretty good job at conscious sedation, pretty common anesthesia, but it was killed by, of course, the anesthesia lobby, right? They didn't want to have their, their lunch eaten. So it's all about sometimes following the money, the incentives or misaligned incentives, particularly in, in the US system, where those are unencumbered in some other spots in the world, particularly where there's huge unmet need and a, you know, it doesn't need to be the perfect wearable that has, you know, 100% grade blood pressure and blood sugar on it. But if you have something like that and it's a $20 Chinese uh, knockoff, that can provide some basic level of diagnostics and data for a huge proportion of the, of the population. That's happening in India, for example. They're leapfrogging right. over the US. Uh, Israel, where the data comes together and helped us understand what was working and not working in the COVID pandemic. So um, we can definitely learn from cross-pollination and um, not having a failure from imagination of what's possible here in, in the U.S. centric model. Okay, so so it seems to me that your your response to the the big five trends that I shared with you about um, aging population and more more patients and um, more people uninsured, uh, and then the, the idea of more technology and rising costs. The way to square that circle is uh, is that in different parts of the world, different places, they're moving at different rates to adopt technology that works today, that's available at scale today to solve practical problems, what can be done today. Um, now let's go a little bit into the future. Let's just tweak that a little bit and look at the future because Brett mentioned a moment ago, a really important point, which is that there's an increasing shortage of healthcare workers. And that's not all. There's also this factor of burnout. We heard about it during COVID. Now it's here and it's a real thing. Uh, some 60% of uh, healthcare workers report that they feel burnout and some 40% intend to retire or leave the field, exit the field entirely. Uh, so the, the research varies there. So the data is a little bit inconsistent, but the point is that a lot of people working in healthcare are fed up and exhausted and burned out. What technologies might help us supplement or maybe substitute for healthcare workers who are leaving the workforce? Well, first, just to address the burnout issue in general, number one, part of it is the technology that's in the way. We have now this world, I used to handwrite notes when I was a medical student. By the time I was done with training, it was all electronic medical records. And those are a huge barrier 
to care right now and a huge burnout factor. We call them, I like to call it epic fail. I mean, they're they're made for billing, not really electronic medical records. They're billing records and they're really getting in the way and cause part of the burnout challenges. Others' challenges, especially in the U.S. system, is, is folks feeling like they're uh, not empowered as clinicians and they're widgets in a, a, a big, big machine. So there's some way, somehow we need to get the technology help get out of the way. For example, now our voice can help us write a note. If I'm your doc and we're doing a clinical visit, it can help write the electronic medical record note for me. Um, that can help uh, give us more human face time. And increasingly, as technology gets better at helping make decisions and pick the right drug, the human piece, not just hand, holding the hand, but that's going to still remain very valuable. It's not going to replace, you can't really replace the human touch, but there is forms of digital empathy that are, are going to be more and more important for virtual care. So um, I, I think uh, if we take a few steps forward, we have a shortage of nurses uh, and other healthcare workers. Robotics is going to play a role. It already is starting to. We're seeing humanoid type robots, avatar-like elements that are going to be empowered with um, AGI to help, yeah, whether it's... Yeah folks at home all the way to uh, in the operating room. You know, robotic surgery is already here. That's going to become more and more autonomous. We're enable a surgeon in San Francisco to teleport into a surgery in, in a war zone. So, uh, you know, we're going to see a lot of new ways of extending our reach. The metaverse is sort of here. How uh, you can collaborate and bring teams together uh, is going to be part of that solution. And I think the advent of AI and chatbots, et cetera, will start to decrease the burden of that one-on-one stuff that has a lot of friction. That doesn't really take a lot of cognitive load today that that can be supplanted uh, with, with smart technology. One of the things I noticed is that, uh, at least in the United States, but this is probably true in a lot of industrialized nations, we don't really have public health care crises. In fact, that was what was weird about the COVID-19 outbreak. It's the first time we had a really serious infectious disease uh, spread across the country all at once. And it caused a kind of a panic because we're frankly, from a public health standpoint, we're out of shape. We're not used to complying with public health mandates. Uh, so that was a tough one for most Americans to contend with. But the real issues facing Americans uh, and American healthcare are, are self-inflicted. And by that, I mean, the number one uh, cause of, of uh, health disorder is, is diabetes um, and then broadly nutrition, bad nutrition, but also tobacco, HIV, and now increasingly environment. Uh, these are all factors that, that affect healthcare health in the U.S. in an adverse way. And in a sense, they're all self-inflicted. They're all lifestyle choices that we could do differently. I'm wondering if the technologies you just mentioned, things like chatbots uh, and monitor, self-monitoring and so on, if that can help us correct some of those bad habits uh, and lifestyle choices that lead to bad health outcomes. Yeah, 100%. Like 80% of our cost, morbidity, mortality is not from our genetics, but from our bad behaviors, too much stress, bad sleeping, bad environments, uh, nutrition, et cetera. And so, yes, you can have, I think this emergent future, I like to call it, you know, generative health is instead of getting that one little pamphlet that says eat, eat less and exercise more, you'll have that sort of generative environment that's going to talk to you in your language. You'll build the VR environment, the music for your workouts, the coaching for your um diet, nutrition, et cetera, that can really, uh, you know, help you build your personal health coach and essentially through your entire health journey, as well as already have your genome sequence from before you're born. You know, we've, we've already entered this Gattaca moment, not just to be able to measure, but even manipulate the, the genome. Um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be able to sort of connect those dots again I'm putting my pediatrician hat on. If you do something simple, like when you have a six month old baby and you start to eat solid foods and you give them whole grains, 
as opposed to the white Gerber, you know, white rice, sugary stuff, it changes their gut microbiome and their epigenetics and their downstream risk for diabetes and uh, other diseases goes down dramatically. So simple proactive things early in life, not subsidizing school lunches to have lots of cheese in them, being smart about tobacco, all those things, the social determinants of health and other elements are much more impactful than the CRISPR and the robotic surgery in terms of um, big picture impacts. Mm-hmm. We've also seen um, some leaps and bounds in a couple of areas. One is the use of psychedelics, um, which we'll we'll speak about in a moment, but also, um, you know, sort of, not, I wouldn't call it biohacking, but the fasting movement, for example, you mentioned, um, you know, control of uh, diabetes with changing your, uh, you know, being able to sort of reset your insulin levels with uh, fasting and we, you know, we had Aubrey de Grey on talking about the benefits of caloric reduction and fasting um, for longevity in the show and what it does for, um, you know, sort of cell regeneration, autophage and so forth. Um, so there, these are sort of sort of non-traditional areas where we're seeing um, significant improvements. Um, are there other areas like that that you're excited about that sort of are coming from a bit of left field and changing the way we think about medicine? I know Aubrey has been a great instigator to think differently about aging as a disease and that it's, you know, multifactorial. Um, and I think what I'm excited about is now, you know, we're moving from this age sometimes of the transhumanists who want to live forever and the alcors of the world, which sort of is not my sweet spot to think about more like extending health span. You want 120 to be the new 90. I was right. actually at my, my wife's grandmother's 104th birthday a few months ago. Uh, we're also there at 100. You know, she's had an incredible health span. Part of it's from her social environments, of course, genes and habits, health. What I think is interesting now is this element of not just, you know, precision medicine, but precision wellness and health span optimization. And that's going to start with obviously the, the basic things, exercise, sleep, social connection, sense of purpose. But now we're seeing potentially things like intermittent fasting or some drugs still unproven, like metformin. I think we're going to move to an era pretty quickly where now, you know, folks like David Sinclair have published, at least in mice, the ability to tune up and down your epigenetics for right, aging. Yeah, you might have your own personalized study. cocktail. You might have your own personalized cocktail. Uh, you know, the the Brett or the Robert or Daniel personalized longevity pill will be different based on our genomics and other risk factors. In fact, I've been building a little new startup. You can watch a TED talk about this, about 3D printing your own personalized poly pills. So imagine in the morning you wake up and just like your coffee can have a cartridge, you'll have your little cartridge that blends your dose of aspirin, statin, rapamycin, metformin, whatever it might be that's appropriate to help prevent disease or manage it. Uh, but that we that would be optimized for you based on all the you know internet of things and digital twin elements that we're learning and crowdsourcing from around the around the world. It was actually depicted in the peripheral. Um, the new Williams Gibson uh, series that was on Amazon Prime where they went to the pharmacy and they had uh, compounds sent from the future for them to 3D print in in the pharmacy and that was the personalized medicine. So um, maybe we can use that as a, as a discussion. Um, we like to wrap up the show with getting really sci-fi, you know, out there. So looking out 20 or 30 years, um, you know, what do you think the world of healthcare is going to be like then? I think in 20, 30 years, every kid that's born will already be sequenced pre-birth that's already happening. We'll use the sort of polygenic risk scores to give you a much better guided healthcare journey. So if you can be super proactive, you know what your risk of diabetes or heart disease or Alzheimer's from early on in life, you'll be much more integrated with the right tools to help stave those off. We'll have the ability to have 
you know, your AI clinician with you at all times and your medical history streamed from your wearables. There's definitely dystopian elements about who has this data and what it can do and who gets up-leveled and down-leveled, but we'll have a much better picture of true personalized precision health. And we'll have quantum computing that will be able to make sense of your digital biomarkers or design that in a one drug that's right for you to prevent that cancer or manage your risk for dementia and stave it off. We'll be in an era of regenerative medicine where you can regenerate organs and tissues just by turning the right genes on and off, epigenetics inside the body. It's like Altos Labs moving that direction. So, you know, it's hard to predict the future, but some of these things are going to come a bit faster than we predict if we can sort of get out of the way or smartly, you know, meld the, the understand the ethics, the regulatory, the reimbursement elements, and try and make it fair and equitable. And so it's not a have or have not um, component. But I think it's a really exciting time, particularly with multiomics, digital twin, wearables, otherables, the sort of AI clinician in your pocket that we can start to really bring healthcare for all and bring folks from all sorts of fields, particularly for mental health, video gaming, um, uh, all the way to, uh, you know, psychedelics as ways to really right. be much more proactive and not wait for disease to kind of cause our crushing uh, challenges and costs. And, and it should lower the overall national healthcare costs, these combined technologies, you know, if you've got genomics, gene therapy that is eliminating diseases from your genome, then you don't have the cost of servicing that. But that's, that sort of breaks the big pharma model, right? Right. That's in trials today that you'll take it in, in vivo gene therapy to knock out the bad gene that causes like super high cholesterol, for example. Right. That's not a sustainable model uh, for pharma where they want to keep giving you the statin. This will right, be a one-time right. potential proactive cure. Um, and that has lots of implications. And that's already sort of coming here today. We can already cure diseases like sickle cell and thalassemia from my bone marrow transplant world with gene therapy. Many diseases are, are complex, but we'll see some proactive cures, kind of like the Monardi report. You'll, you'll cure the disease before you even um, know you have it. Wow. What an inspiring vision. Daniel, it's such a great pleasure to reconnect with you. Thank you very much for joining us on The Futurists. But folks, if you're in the San Diego area in mid-March, be sure to check out nextmed.health. That's that's Daniel's gathering of uh, of worldwide experts on the future of medicine, the future of healthcare. And if you can't be in San Diego, then definitely check out digital.health. That's Dave, Daniel's new repository of all the information uh, that we just described. And it really is kind of comprehensive. I know you feel like there's a lot more to do, but boy, when I went there, I, I could spend hours perusing that information. So that's sort of an interesting, uh, 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 he makes available all of his findings and all of his research for everyone. Thank you very kindly for joining us on the show. It's been a real honor and pleasure. I'll just give you one parting thought. Um, and, and some of this is on my website, danielcraftmd.net. But the idea that we all should be healthcare futurists, a lot of these solutions are out there now. You can find them on digital.health. But your doctor, your nurse, your pharmacist, your nutritionist has no clue that they're already here. You can start to use them to match and find and solve your healthcare problems. And also, the future is being built by people outside of traditional healthcare. You don't have to be a doctor, pharmacist, biotech person to see a problem and help build the app with the kid down the street or 3D print the mock-up of the wearable or otherable. It's a real interesting time now for everybody to play a role in not just predicting the future of health and medicine, but but collaboratively uh, creating it for, for all of us. We can be active stewards of our own health. We just have to get involved and get informed. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it, ultimately, it does come down to personal responsibility and taking making the right choices. Uh, well, with the resources you're providing, people can make better decisions. So I think that that's really a laudable and, and huge achievement. So thank you for joining us and sharing that with us today. Brett, you want to wrap up for the show? Sure. 
Thanks for joining us on The Futurist this week. Next week, we'll be back with more uh, interviews. Um, of course, uh, one of the ways you can help is make sure you leave us a nice review, five-star review on iTunes, podcast, the Stitcher, wherever it is, Spotify, wherever it is you listen to the show. Um, you know, Tweet us out, uh, share it with your friends and family. That's how uh, we get to get new audience members. Um, and let us know who else you'd like to appear on the show because we, we love your input into that process. We've had a lot of community involvement in in that and it's uh, really uh, paying off for us but uh, whatever happens uh, we will return next week with another episode of the futurist until then we'll see you in the future, in the future. well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show we sure hope you did please subscribe and share it with the people in your community and don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show and you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.